am Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. If our episode sounds a little different today, that's because we're recording outside the studio practicing social distancing. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Group Director Stephanie Dolores to discuss how organizations should tackle bringing their employees safely back to work and other facets of pandemic recovery planning. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, everyone. I'm excited to be here today. So, Stephanie, Forrester CEO George Colony published a blog post a couple weeks ago now around the four phases of the coronavirus pandemic. And many countries will be or are entering into phase three, what he describes as management. So can you maybe walk us through like what needs to happen? What do organizations need to tackle during this phase? So this this management phase, it's it's an important one because of the four phases, it's the one that will last the longest. It'll last potentially six months, 18 months, even up to 24 months. A lot of it is dependent on how quickly the world finds a vaccine or how quickly we develop community immunity to the virus itself. So what that means is, you know, if there's no vaccine and we don't have immunity, we're going to have to manage as if it's still around. Um, and it's still a, a deadly impact to all of us. So we have to protect employees. We have to protect customers. We have to protect our partners. We have to continue operating as if it's still here. So that means permanent changes to uh, how we work, how we go out to shop, how we engage with each other on a long-term basis. And Steph, that's gotta be hard, right? I mean, we're talking about an important phase, could last a long time. We need to start planning for it now, but we don't really know what will happen in that phase for sure, or how long it will last. So how how should executives even start to think about planning for this phase when there just are so many unknowns at this point? Yeah, I do think that's why it's important to do uh, scenario planning. Um, so to your point, like we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there are, um, whether it's the medical community um, or or some other government organizations, they have outlined like possible scenarios. So there's scenarios such as, you know, we continue all of our social distancing and restrictions and we hit a peak sometime soon and, and there's a decline by the summer. There's also a scenario where we peak at the summer and we see this decline, then there's this huge resurgence in the fall as we start to loosen restrictions on travel, on social distancing again. And then, then that coincides with the typical flu season and, and it becomes even worse. There's also the unfortunate scenario where we can continue to see this um, steady rate of infection. So maybe it's not dr increasing dramatically, but we're not actually, you know, uh, seeing the decline that we want to see. And we just have to continue to, to manage this uh, again until we have a vaccine or, or the immunity. So, and there's other variations of these, you know, the second one I described is called the V scenario. There's a W scenario. Um, but I think understanding that there's multiple scenarios, that's helpful because Businesses have to understand that this isn't a episodic event where suddenly it's going to be over and it's back to business as normal. Um, there's going to be a new set of normal. And there's also possibility that several times throughout this, um, we might actually have to move back to phase two, where we're going to be required to do social distancing and pull out of uh, restrictions on travel and another type of um, engagement. So it helps as you're planning to think about that because you need the flexibility to go back to, to phase two. And it also 
sets up what we're, we're talking about, a cautious staged approach uh, to returning people to work. So let's talk a little bit about returning to work. On one hand, many folks are eager to get to back to some level of normalcy. And others, I think, right, based on, on current research that and, and information and survey data that we've got back, are actually quite concerned about the idea of going back to work. So can you give us a sense of what does that look like? What are, what are we facing as we start to think about bringing workers back into the workplace? Yeah, that's a good point. Employees are very scared, and it's it's similar across the United States as well as Europe, like similar levels of concern. And so we break down what we're calling pandemic management protocols, these, these processes and procedures that you have to have in place before you can even start to think about bringing employees back to work. And we break them out into two major buckets. One is focused on the employees themselves, um, you know, keeping them safe. And also it's, it's protecting the business. And then one is on the facilities themselves. So when it comes to the employees, what, what organizations should think about is one, um, bringing them back to work in stages. You don't wanna bring everybody back all at once because if there are second waves of infections, you could be exposing your employee population, you know, in mass to a reinfection. Uh, and you don't that want that kind of absenteeism rate. It's obviously not good for your employees. It's not, it's not good for your business. So think about bringing your employees back in stages. I, I talked to one company who is planning to bring employees back to work in the reverse order that they sent them home to work. So that's, that's one strategy. Or you could potentially do it by location or, or job function based on necessity. The second thing is even, even within that staged grouping, you're going to have them work in shifts. You don't want everybody working at the same time. So this might be shifts based on hours, depending on the nature of your business. If you're a typical corporate environment, it might mean um, bringing people back to work certain days of the week. There's this one client, I actually love this approach. It's having one group of employees come to work Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, then Wednesday is a day for deep cleaning the office. So that if there is infections from the Monday, Tuesday group, um, the group that now comes in on Thursday, Friday isn't exposed to that infection. Um, I've seen other variations of that. I've seen one company that's um, going to have another, you know, Monday, Tuesday, then a Wednesday, Thursday group, and then the entire company works from home on Friday. So there's variations, but you're going to work, you're going to work in stages. The other thing is we're going to continue to maintain social distancing, even in the office. And I think this is the really hard part for a lot of organizations you have to completely rethink your layout so that you have six feet of distance in between people. So people are not going to just go to their desk that they're normally sit at. It might be every other desk. Um, I, I talked to one client who has a completely open layout, doesn't even have desks, just has people sitting at tables. So now they're, th that's not even going to work for them. They have to completely start from zero. Meeting rooms are, are another place. Uh, you know, for example, if you have to maintain six feet of distance in between people, then depending on the size of the meeting room, you'll have to limit the number of individuals who can be in that meeting. In the US, the federal government is saying no meetings of more than 10 people. So forget about big company meetings where you might have hundreds of people in the same room. Um, then you talk about the personal protective equipment. Right now, organizations are, are talking about incentivizing employees to you know, wear masks. And of course, there's a shortage. So there's all questions about how to source them. You know, there's creative opportunities to have contests. Um, I know some organizations are working with local suppliers in order to purchase the masks. But I, I have talked to a few employers who are actually going to make them mandatory. And these aren't essential employers that have been working the whole time. Um, you know, these are organizations in uh, 
high tech and insurance that aren't necessarily customer facing, but for the safety of everyone, and, and just as a default position, they're going to require PPE in the office. Um, so those are just a, a, a few of the things about the employees themselves. How should executives think about how conservative or not to be with those PMPs? So you talked about some organizations requiring that, some incentivizing it and suggesting it. How, how do you know how heavy-handed you should be in those protocols? That's a good question. I do think a lot of it will come to geography. Actually, one of the unknowns uh, about the, the virus is that the epicenter constantly shifts. You know, this started off in Asia, then quickly went to Pacific Northwest, the U.S., then Europe, then all of the U.S. Even within the U.S., we could have different epicenters and hotspots over time. So a lot of it depends on your local geography. Um, if you still have a high rate of infections, then I would mandate PPEs. Um, if your geography has seen a decline of infections, if you have ample testing and feel very confident that your geography is testing enough, then you might be able to relax the requirement for PPEs. But I would say if you're in a hot spot, um, you know, if your local uh, state officials don't feel confident that they have enough testing in place, then, then um, definitely be more, more restrictive. Uh, and then also following local advice as well. We're going to see the the medical advice and the advice coming out from, from local officials vary region to region. So I would say it's the, the both of those things together. What about the legal implications here, right? Like at what point is a firm's responsible for their employees' health and, and safety and, you know, requiring something for them? You know, is that covering themselves or how should firms be thinking about potential legal implications here? There definitely will be legal implications. In fact, we've already seen lawsuits from employees who have been who have been infected or who are actually just concerned about being forced to work in an environment where they feel the organization hasn't taken enough steps to ensure their safety. So you're definitely, particularly in the U.S., I think opening yourself up to a lot of uh, civil lawsuits. And the more employees that join those lawsuits, the more strength that they that they have. Taking a more aggressive approach will, will protect you from a lot of those future lawsuits. I would also say it's just good for business. Um, I think this pandemic has shown a light on the importance of employee experience. And I think a lot of how employers treat employees now uh, is going to have a huge impact on their ability in the future to attract the best talent, to retain the best talent, and to get the most out of the talent that they that they have. So definitely from a legal uh, perspective, I think... Um, you'll be saving yourself a lot of heartache, but I, I think more importantly from an employee experience perspective, your ability to, to attract, retain, and get the most out of your talents is, is one of the most important reasons, I think, to have really good pandemic management protocols in place. Um, and then the, the legal implications do vary um, based on your geography. I mean, the U.S. actually probably has some of the um, most lax labor laws in the, in the world, so a lot of uh, labor issues are addressed through through civil lawsuits. It's not the case in other parts of the world. There are much stronger um, labor laws. Actually, interestingly, right now in Germany, the German government is actually considering passing a law at the national level, um, requiring employees to provide flexibility to work from home, which is which is really interesting. So, you know, in other parts of the world, you're, you're going to face much tougher um, labor requirements, but. Overall, I, I think you, you do the right thing because it's, it's good for business and it's ethical. 
Yeah. And there are certainly brand implications there, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, like we've seen with, with other incidents and what have you. Stephanie, you kind of mentioned this in your, your uh, previous response, but you know, what signals are organizations using to guide their recovery plan? So local or regional guidance, obviously things from like the CDC and what have you, are there other inputs that should be taken into consideration here as they build out and I'm assuming kind of iterate their, their plans? Yeah, I would definitely focus on the reliable and well-recognized government sources. I mean, you mentioned the CDC in the U.S., um, there's the equivalent in most other countries as well, the European Centers for Disease Prevention and uh, Preparedness. So as an example, the World Health Organization. So definitely look to those organizations for reliable information because there's a whole lot of misinformation out there right now. Um, and then I would also say, too, there, there are a lot of um, universities and colleges that are putting out great models for, again, the different types of pandemic scenarios um, there are sources like John Hopkins University. I actually subscribe to their their daily updates about the pandemic. They have a great dashboard that on a global level is actually monitoring the number of infections and the number of reported deaths uh, that I that I check pretty frequently. The other thing I would say about having good, reliable data sources about how the pandemic is playing out is also just being patient about the the signal from that data. If you look at the daily infection rates and you look at the daily, daily mortality rates, they're constantly being revised. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which is in, in some cases, um, you might suddenly see a, a huge rise in infections. And it's not necessarily because uh, the spread is greater in a particular region. It might be because there's more there's more frequent testing, like the, the rate of testing has increased. Or on the weekends, for example, you might actually see drops in mortality rates because People aren't reporting right away. They're they're reporting um, after a few days. So we're constantly seeing revisions to the the daily numbers. And then you know again there, there could be there could be other reasons for why you see spikes or or declines. So what a lot of medical experts are saying is is also because there's a, a 14 day incubation period for the virus, and because of the inconsistencies in reporting, you actually do want to wait about 14 days to really see. Uh, consistency in those totals before you make decisions yourself. And you might actually want to be more conservative than your local government. So if your local government actually starts easing restrictions and gives signals to businesses, then they can start to reopen. Uh, you might actually choose to be more conservative. You might want to wait an additional two weeks just to make sure that you don't have to suddenly reclose again. So that's a, that would give some recommendations is uh, know your sources, but also maybe even be more cautious than those sources as well as more cautious than your local government recommends. Maybe kind of hard to do in some instances where you think about a scenario where local governments may be easing restrictions. That means all of a sudden you might have consumers and customers that are out and about and looking to give you business, right? How would you guide leaders to balance the kind of the enthusiasm and excitement of their customers and the demand coming there, which, which is obviously a very positive sign, but with what sounds like you're recommending, which is a healthy dose of conservatism when it comes to reopening. It is going to put organizations in a, in a, in a bit of a quandary. And I think that's where knowing your organization's tolerance for risk is, is important uh, and, and balancing the tolerance for risk with the reality of the situation. And, and then I think coming back to the protocols we were discussing, that's where taking the staged approach 
could be really helpful because, you know, if you do make that tough decision to open up a little bit earlier than maybe you would have liked, um, at least you're not bringing everybody back all at once. Um, and then you're, you're having people work in shifts. Uh, the other thing I would say too about the cautious opening is, um, in your case, you're assuming that, you know, restrictions are lifted and, you know, it's the roaring 20s. People want to get out and about and go shopping. It could also be the opposite, which is people are really scared and they might actually slowly, um, you know, start to go shopping again and out to the movies and, and re-engaging. They themselves might take a more cautious approach. So you don't want to open up uh, too early and you don't want to uh, purchase inventory and uh, ramp up to full capacity right away if there's no if there's no demand there there's a couple of interesting examples out of asia where you know as uh, uh particularly in china as the government uh felt confident that they had the pandemic under control they started lifting restrictions in hubei province and wuhan the capital and started opening uh manufacturing facilities global consumer demand had dropped by 40 percent so suddenly those a lot of those facilities were idle and there was one facility I'm only laughing because of the irony that, you know, they raced to open and and then they actually had to lay employees off because the, the demand just wasn't there. So there's certainly the the cautious approach to protecting everyone's safety, employees as well as consumers, but there's also the fi- managing the financial risk of, of opening ahead of demand. So Stephanie, I imagine that, you know, this pandemic has certainly changed the shape of the workforce, meaning that there are employees working from home, obviously right now, but there with this sort of staged approach will be a certain population continuing to work from home, even maybe those employees who don't feel comfortable getting back into the office, and then those folks who are going to be back in the office. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how IT teams are um, going to have to support maybe a new shape of, of workforce in terms of where people are and doing their work? The advice that we've been giving IT leaders is that from now on, just be prepared to support a virtual workforce permanently. There's a lot of reasons for that. One, a couple that you mentioned, which is there is going to be some segment of your employee base who is vulnerable or who is uncomfortable, and they're not going to return to work. And it's going to be up to employers to to support them. And I think most employers will. The other thing that I've seen as well is in some cases, what this is all proven is that most, if not all, business functions can be carried out remotely. I mean, we talked to clients in industries like financial services who there were certain processes that they were convinced could never be done remotely. And it turns out, yes, they they can be. So, you know, we talked to one IT leader and it says like, now that it's proven that in fact, most of our processes can be can be done remotely. It's it's completely shattered a lot of long held beliefs about needing to be in the office. So, regardless of whether people are vulnerable or scared, um, or just prefer to work from home, we we think there's going to be this um, permanent part of your workforce that, that will that will work from home. And then even for the for the employees that come to the office, again, imagine that there's going to be second waves and people are going to have to return home again, um, or now that again people have the ability to work from home they're going to want to keep that so we're seeing companies talk about just having permanent flexibility to work from home so maybe it's supporting more people more days of the week working from home the the other thing that this has has shown too is a lot of uh companies were not prepared from an it perspective to suddenly have thousands of employees head home i have some clients that 
um, it, it was part of their 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 IT capabilities and part of their culture to enable people to work from home. I had other clients who could not handle the scale. So every morning when people tried to log in, their systems were crashing. Um, they had no good approach to multi-factor authentication. They had to uh, reduce some of their security protocols for people working from to support people working from home. So there was a big glaring divide between the uh, the haves and the have-nots, if you will, around uh, supporting a virtual workforce. So I, I think business leaders are going to demand, you know, for those IT shops that really couldn't uh, handle it, they're going to demand the, you know, a lot of modernization of legacy technology environments. So this will be accelerating roadmaps for, you know, app and infrastructure upgrades. Um, a better network, you know, more high performance network, high availability architectures, a lot more automation for, for speed and reliability, a lot more adoption of the cloud for both scale and flexibility. And then it's, it's also forced a lot of organizations to take interest into what we might call like unexciting technologies, or maybe they weren't at the, at the list of your emerging tech, um, but things like video conferencing and collaboration tools, phone services, um, VPNs, although there's, you don't necessarily have to use a VPN, there's alternate approaches to uh, securing individuals, but virtual desktops, you name it. So everything that it takes from a technology perspective to make um, a, a virtual, and I'll actually say hybrid, whether they work from home or in the office or whatever location, everything that it needs to now support that individual and have them fully functional in their job and to, to serve customers, that's going to that's gonna be a permanent change. We're not going to go back to what we had before. So we've talked a, about a lot of different facets of leadership as we're talking and, and pulling on muscles that may not have been stretched in the past in a lot of cases. We talked a good, a good bit about EX, how that may be a huge differentiator going far, forward and how leaders handle that in this scenario could pay dividends in terms of employee loyalty and staffing and so forth. I got to believe that in general, when you step back and look at this overall, this is a big kind of defining moment for leaders and for their organizations. Uh, Steph, could you leave us with your thoughts about the longer term implications of this? The, the does this set thing does this set an organization up for better success if they handle it correctly and and build these muscles for, I guess anything that the future may hold? Because obviously we don't know what's around the corner. This the situation has proven that, if nothing else. We don't know exactly what's around the corner, but I think to your point, what this is laid bare is just how poor a lot of uh, business continuity and overall resilience planning organizations had in place. You know, for example, yes, maybe global pandemic wasn't at the top of um, organizations uh, identified risks, but it was a, a pretty well-known risk. Um, you know, in fact, in 2015, Bill Gates did a TED talk about it. If you would talk to like every um, infectious disease expert, they have been totally panicked about a pandemic for at least the, the last 10 years. Even uh, actually, if we, we, look, we looked at the uh, financial statements of the, the Fortune 50, and actually Apple had taken out insurance against a pandemic. I mean, it's not going to cover uh, all of their shortfall, but they at least had identified it as a risk. So it is possible with good risk management to have um, a better understanding of the probability of certain risks happening. And that gives you the ability to actually plan for it, to mitigate the ones that you can mitigate. And it'll give you this ability if they should come to pass that you can actually deliver on your, your mission to customers or citizens or patient, whoever your ultimate end uh, customer is. 
no matter what the disruption, it could be political upheaval, it could be another pandemic, which are, which is actually very likely. It could be extreme weather, which will become much more frequent. It could be regulatory action. Whatever the crisis is, and regardless of what the source is, with better risk management and business continuity and resiliency capabilities in place, you can keep serving those, those customers. And so it'll make your customers more loyal. For your employees, it'll make you a preferred employer, and you'll be able to better recruit and retain the best talent. Um, you can better protect your revenue in, in, during the crisis, as well as your, your brand and your reputation. And ultimately, we think because you'll be able to do all that, as well as if you do suffer, you'll be able to recover faster from competitors. You take all that together, the, the better risk identification, the better mitigation, the better and more flexible response to events as they occur, it's going to make you uh, a much more competitive organization. In fact, it will be a competitive advantage over, over other companies. And actually, systemic risk is one of the, the four forces that we think are going to shape the 2020s coming up. So if, if you're not responding to that, you're going to be at a, at a significant disadvantage. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Steph. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.